0: Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab. Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to the takeaway. I'm Janae Pierre and from Melissa Harris Perry. Head with us to the summer of 1967, where there were over 150 riots against racialized state violence. Throughout this period, incidents of police brutality and harassment of African Americans were immediate triggers for most civil unrest. The report of the president's commission on riots will tell white America that the United States is a racist country. That's what we do in this
1: society. We appoint a committee and we investigate. Ergo, something's being done. That's just simply
0: not true. The new documentary Riotsville USA on Hulu tracks the history of the prototype for places like the planned police training facility near Atlanta that some community members have dubbed Cop City. Riotsville
1: is a series of mock cities It was part of a a training course called SeaDoc, which brought in police officers, senators, you know, officials of all sorts, um, but largely police officers from all over the country to be trained to watch these recreations, basically, um, that were loosely based on some of the inciting incidents from 1967, Um, one that's featured in the film shows what happened in Watts. My name is Sierra Pettengill. I'm the director of Riotsville, USA.
0: I sat down with Sierra and asked what she wanted people to take away from her documentary regarding police militarization and repression.
1: What the film tracks is a process by which, you know, the United States decided at a kind of turning point moment in time to pour massive amounts of funding into the police. Um, between 1963 and 1970, the amount of police officers in the nation more than doubled. Um, federal, federal allocation to local police forces went from $0 in 1964 to $300 million in 1970. You know, this is a very quick change um, and it is a massive amount of money. Um, and so part of what I want the film to demonstrate is that, you know, these systems that we're living under at the moment were built um, and are the consequence of a, a set of decisions and therefore they can be undone.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me about the Kerner's report. Explain its significance to Riotsville.
1: So the Kerr Commission um, was convened by LBJ in 1967 after um, you know the massive uprisings that that hit nearly every American city mm-hmm. at that in that time, um, and he pulled together a very moderate group, um, uh, mostly policymakers, some labor uh, representatives, civil rights leaders, a police chief, um, and he. Uh, was mostly interested in having this commission. Uh, They were tasked with investigating what happened in the cities and, you know, what should be done. He wanted them to find evidence of outside agitators. Um, uh, And this commission given, you know, it was largely white men made up of largely white men was not expected to um, produce anything very radical. Um, And, uh after many months of of reporting within the cities that were affected they turned around a report that said um the problem is white racism we are living in a divided city and in in short unless we pour massive amounts of money into writing inequality that has been um historically developed um nothing is going to change the reason for the riots were you know, a, a massive inequality in housing, um, employment, um, uh, living conditions in, in cities. Um, mm-hmm. And and they called for a, a huge amount of money to be invested into uh, what kind of amounts to reparations in some ways, but mm-hmm. trying to trying to um, right these inequalities. Um uh, it was a shock. Um, LBJ dismissed it, he didn't want to hear it. Um, and sort of buried in the back of the Kerner Report, there was a recommendation for um, professionalizing the police to try to at least prevent some of the uh, violence that happened by law enforcement towards communities um, during 1967. Um, no, none of the recommendations in the Kerner Report um, that called for financial investment were ever implemented. Um, mm-hmm. The only one was the investment into the police.
0: I want to talk a bit more about the money that goes into, into all of this. I mean, what is there to be said about how policy endeavors like Riotsville or Cobb City are funded?
1: You know, I know that's a private-public partnership through the Atlanta Police Foundation, mm-hmm. which just seems... Uh, insane and egregious, um, and should be something that we're all talking about, um, I think, much more actively. Uh, You know, Riotsville um, is, you know, I spoke to, over the course of making the film, a lot of people who were involved, and one of the men who did the training said it was um, remarkable. We had a a blank check for Riotsville. Um, And, you know, at the time in 67 and 68, uh, America was still fighting the Vietnam War. And, uh, you know, there's a clip in the film where a, a television anchor says, you know, the the amount it would take to implement what the current commission is calling for uh, is the same amount we're spending per month in Vietnam. And so, you know, it's never going to happen. Um, and so, you know, the what's documented in the film is is largely an allocation of federal resources um and what comes with those federal resources which are you know incentives for people to invest in military um military gear that is oriented towards police departments so you know there's suddenly a real incentive for private companies to be building tanks rather than going to the army to go to police departments and you know developing tear gas Mm -hmm. that sort of thing yeah
0: There's a really impactful moment uh, in the film. We get to see documented footage of what took place in Riotsville. Dozens of people would sit in an audience and watch staged police intervention on fake riots. Can you describe that detail for our audience?
1: The camera swings and catches uh, these, you know, white upper brass men in the audience laughing at what they're watching. Um, And so... You know, Riotsville and the building of, of these mock cities, uh, like what's happening in Cop City, you know, they the the literal um, space uh, and the architecture of that is is ridiculous and egregious. Um, but they also, you know, the film points out that these are places of the state enacting a fantasy. It's, it's rewriting what they want the uprising to, to be. They're rewriting what Watts looked like and then training. Um almost all of the us. police pass through Riotsville, It can be estimated.
0: Sierra Pettengill is Director of riotsville, USA on Hulu. Sierra, thanks. Thank you. Next up, we have an update on the current protest around Atlanta's Cop City. It's the takeaway. About 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S., prompting family members to become amateur detectives. On the trail of one missing person is journalist Tanya Mosley. Why do you think you hesitated when we first met in telling me the full details about your mother's disappearance? It's heartbreaking. I didn't want to break your heart. I'm Kai Wright. Tanya Mosley joins me next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In 2021, Republican state lawmakers introduced over 80 anti-protest bills across the country, some even making it permissible for truck drivers to hit protesters. Many experts describe these laws as backlash to the racial justice protest of the summer of 2020, following the police killing of George Floyd. Today, the issue is compounded for environmental activists by a growing number of anti-protest bills that criminalize demonstrators who protest near critical infrastructure and oil or gas pipelines. Nineteen protesters associated with the Defend the Forest Atlanta movement have been charged with domestic terrorism. At least nine are accused of nothing more than trespassing. I spoke with Lauren Regan, an attorney and executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center, who's working to defend protesters of cop city charged with domestic terrorism.
2: Back in 2019, the Georgia legislature passed this domestic terrorism law in the form that we are looking at today. And the uh, legislators at that time basically said that the reason that they needed to add this law to their arsenal of criminal statutes was because of um, acts like the Boston Marathon bombing and the Charleston massacre of nine Black AME church members Mm -hmm. and the Orlando nightclub shooting. And by looking at those events, you know, those were massive human casualties. And overwhelmingly, they were racist and homophobic motivated crimes. And so fast forward to about two months ago now, um, there were a group of forest defenders in Atlanta, and this conglomeration of state and local law enforcement agencies raided the forest and arrested these land defenders, some of whom were literally laying in hammocks asleep when this raid occurred. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, they were all charged with this domestic terrorist statute. So, you know, I think first, history repeats itself. And I, I think, you know, looking at uh, riotsville and comparing it to what's going on right now is really important because if we don't know our history, we're going to be bound to repeat it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that you know really struck me when we became involved in these cases is you know this was a Republican law uh, proposal that has not been used. This will be the first time that this statute is being used to prosecute people in the state of Georgia. And it is not prosecuting racists or homophobic people who are killing human beings, but instead is prosecuting left-leaning activists who are defending public land from what is basically a corporate takeover. You know, as Sierra mentioned, the funding of this is about one-third Uh, from the public taxpayers and there's like a $90 million price tag on this project. The rest of the funding is coming from the Atlanta police foundation, but they are raising the money from corporate donors like Delta and Waffle house and Georgia Pacific. So this is corporate Atlanta Mm -hmm. purchasing themselves, this cop city uh, in a community that has very little open space you know this is definitely an environmental justice campaign Mm -hmm. and issue there are lots of concerns about how this particular park was chosen as the site of it um and now the community and folks that are trying to help protect this land while civil lawsuits are winding their way through the legal system, are being charged with this domestic terrorist statute. The the crime carries a mandatory minimum five-year jail sentence and a maximum punishment of death or life imprisonment.
0: Wow. Throughout your time defending environmental activists, what have been some of the most egregious cases of institutional overreach you've tracked?
2: I think one of the most historic... Um, examples of this in 2005 was the largest roundup of environmental and animal rights activists in the history of the United States, what came to be known as the Green Scare. And this is um, Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front activists that engaged in economic sabotage and property damage, which normally would have been prosecuted and you know normally would have netted about a two- to five-year jail sentence if they were convicted. Mm -hmm. But in this case, on the day that they were all arrested, the then U.S. attorney, Alberto Gonzalez... Um, said, made a press conference and basically accused people who are presumably innocent until proven guilty, but labeled them as the number one domestic terrorist threat in the United States. And this was, you know, a mere four years after the 9-11, you know, incident. Mm -hmm. So to call people who burned a slaughterhouse, a horse slaughterhouse facility down Um, And whose literal philosophy was do no harm to any living thing to label those people as domestic domestic terrorists was my first experience at watching the power of media manipulation and rhetoric being used by the state to try and confuse and, uh, you know, sort of win the people over with an incredibly exaggerated and false narrative.
0: Lauren, what advice would you give to movement builders, activists, land defenders who are seeing all of this, right? And and maybe worried about their own safety? So I think there are a lot of things that we the people
2: can do to try to build resilience to state repression. But an important note to make is often the targets of state repression haven't necessarily done anything uh, unusually illegal or wrong. They just become, you know, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. They are targeted because they're involved in a campaign that is threatening to the state. In, In many ways, their hard work and their advocacy is what made them a target to state repression, and many generations of activists have worn, uh, you know, those attacks as badges of honor. You know that their work really had made a difference, and that um, you know it was important and critical. And I think that's very much the case right now down in Atlanta. Uh, you know, with the Atlanta Forest Defenders, their work is an example for everyone in the United States who is watching the last of their public lands or is watching these major oil pipelines and other um, really harmful industries bullying their way into the community
0: despite the fact that the community says no. Lauren Regan is an attorney and executive director of the Civil Liberties Defense Center. Lauren, thanks for joining us on The Takeaway. Thanks. To catch all of our coverage of Cop City, you can head on over to our website, thetakeaway.org, or listen to us on any podcast provider.